And um, I just want to pray before we get started. Father, we thank you that over, you know we, we, we look back over this past year and a half. Uh, this time last year, we were already four in, in our fifth month of lockdown. And we're thinking about that now and, and how different this year is. And it's good to hear that last song. That's a good word to us. That despite all the craziness and all the ups and downs and all the intensity and maybe bitterness and rage that we've seen or the stress that we've felt or the disconnection we've felt, that nothing can separate separate us from you. We praise you that you have imputed your righteousness upon us. That you've connected us again to yourself. And we ask that your spirit would speak this morning and that all words uttered this morning, all thoughts would be glorifying to your name, that you would draw us into your presence and you would fill us to overflowing. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are centering our thoughts. Good morning. Are you mom? Oh, good. Good morning. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I put you on the spot. But um, we're sending our thoughts on the desire to be overflowing, the overflowing with Christ, right? And, you know, Romans fifteen thirteen is sort of this verse that's just a, a wonderful verse. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. I always want to emphasize that. As you trust in him so that you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I just love that verse. I think it's probably one of the, one of the I don't know, there's a lot of good verses, but still, um, just to have, have it memorized is just really kind of a nice verse. Now, uh, the, think about it. If you had a glass of dirty water, I did this in my sink the other day. I had this little bowl with all this, I don't know, old sauce in there and everything, and I just turned the water on, let it run through it. And when you have something that's dirty, like a glass filled with dirty water, and you put it underneath a faucet, eventually all the impurities get washed out of that cup, right? It starts to run clean after a while. And that's the idea that we're talking about, of being filled to overflowing by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that we're filled with the living word, the living word of Christ, right? Um which is we're going to talk about today. And in that process, we are sanctified, which means we are transformed by the power of the Spirit in our lives, that, that uh, we're made into the likeness of Christ more and more and more, um, and that that will naturally overflow to other people around us and to the community around us and the world around us and all that stuff. So we're like that five-tiered fountain you see down in the center of Ardmore where we're filled with the Holy Spirit at the top and it just flows down uh, into us, then it overflows to family and friends and community and then, then to all the nations of the world as we talked about in our 12-week quote-unquote mission series. But o- overflow to me is a natural process. I'm going to turn off my phone because somebody's beeping me. Um, it's a natural process of being filled, right? It's not forced. It's not awkward. It just happens as we place ourselves below the faucet, right? It, last week when we had the Share Your Faith workshop, um, Shibu said, and I think I've said this up here before, but Shibu said, you know, if you don't love people, <laughs> if you don't love those that don't yet know Christ, he goes, please don't go witness to them, right? <laughs> you know, like, you want to overflow the love of Christ to people. You don't want to overflow your bitterness and rage, which we've all been guilty of doing, myself included. But um, uh, it's not 
forced. It's not awkward. That's not what we're talking about. It just happens, as we said, as we place ourselves under that faucet of the Holy Spirit, under that faucet of Christ, as you trust in Him. There is a, 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 a process of us injecting ourselves into this relationship, right? Um, we have stuff to do. And, and here's the thing. Whatever overflows from you, right, overflows to other people, doesn't it? Now, that can be very exciting if what fills you is Jesus, but it may not be, it may be kind of scary if it's other things, right? Whatever you're filling yourself up with. You know, so we're going to look at first John 4 today, where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. We've preached on this before, but it is a great example of filling and overflowing. It's just a great story, and repetition is a good thing. In Jesus' day, we know that there was animosity, and we're going to see that in this story of between Jews and Samaritans, right? Uh, we start out in the story with Jesus leaving Judea and returning to Galilee, and he, but he chooses, he makes the choice to go through Samaria, right? John chapter 4, starting in verse 4, he sa- it says, now he had, he had to go through Samaria. Now, that's not really kind of true. He chose to go through Samaria, really. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, Near the plot of ground, uh, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Now, as I said, through Samaria was the shortest route to go, right, uh, back to Galilee. But it was not the only way, and it was not the preferred way of a Jew, right? So the other route was through Perea. It was, it was east of the Jordan River. And in Jesus' day, Jews would, because of their hatred for Samaritans, since they considered them to be half-breeds, they were ancient sort of Jews that had intermarried with other peoples. They had kind of, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, bastardized their, their face. They, were, they considered them heretics because they didn't accept all of the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. They only accepted certain portions of it and so they normally would take that eastern route all the way around to avoid any contact with a Samaritan but Jesus chose to go straight through that that area which tells us that Jesus is very unafraid of uh, engaging the despised right that's an important point, I think. Chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, it says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. All right, she adds woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, not only would a Jewish rabbi not associate with a Samaritan, but he would never sort of speak to a woman. Right? You've got to think about that. Jews were not even allowed to drink from the same container as a Samaritan. That's Leviticus 15. Jesus engages her, this outcast, and she's kind of curt, right? A curt Samaritan woman by the side of this well. And we're going to find out later that at some level... And I want to clarify this a little bit later. She is immoral in a sense, right? We don't really know exactly her background so much. Uh, But she has a thirst, we're going to find out, that only Jesus can fill. Only Jesus can fill. Now, she may seem indifferent. It, It almost seems that if Jesus never said a word to her, she wouldn't have asked him anything. She wouldn't said anything to him, right? He engaged her. He spoke to her. And this is, this is interesting to me because last week in that, that 
uh, workshop, the com- what part of our conversation was that people were asking, Shibu, how do you engage people? How do you meet somebody for the first time and direct that conversation to the gospel, right? And here we have Jesus doing it himself, right? So we're learning from his example on how to have a conversation with somebody and lead it to the gospel. Whatever's right and before us, we, we use, right? Um, but there is a dissatisfaction in this woman, a deep dissatisfaction in her soul. And some of us, you know, may come to Jesus through a very immoral lifestyle. You know, we find out we need Jesus because, you know, we've just been partying our butts off, you know, and we're having a good time and doing whatever we, whatever we want. And that's how we've come to Christ. Others of us, though, come to Jesus experiencing our need for him through the empty efforts of doing good, right? You know, just because, you know, the people are, we're no different, so to speak. You know, the guy that's out there partying and the guy that's out there doing good. We all experience our need for Jesus. You know, uh, what's her name? Mother Teresa did all the good in the world, but she still experienced the dark night of her soul, which I believe uh, revealed her real need for Jesus, right? Verse 10, Jesus answered her, He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He says living water, not just water. So Jesus uses this simple context to lead her to understand her need for him, right? He uses that term living water, which she would know right away, right away, her her little alarms are going off. She would know right away. He couldn't get living water from that well. That well was just a cistern. It was a hole in the ground that collected rainwater. That's it. It wasn't flowing water because living water had two meanings. One is it meant like a stream, like water that is running. So it's cleaner. People considered it cleaner, right? Um, Side note, I I went and spent a, a... a weekend in a remote village in Indonesia once, and 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 the woman and the man that we were going with, they're like, "Oh, the river there is so clean, so beautiful and clean." I got there, it was like milky white with all the garbage that was coming down from the other villages. Ugh. But I bathed in it anyway. But it but it would like running water was considered clean water, right? But um, secondly, though, it was also a term that was closely related with the Holy Spirit. It really was. So her little alarm bells are going off in her head right now. He's playing on words. And he's using the situation to address her dissatisfaction and her deep thirst in her life. So it's really not about a drink. We know that. It's, it's not about water, so to speak, physical water. But it's about how she is trying to satisfy the thirst of her soul in very unhealthy ways. And we're going to even say sinful ways. Then verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Like, what what are you going to do, right? Like, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the, the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock, right? In other words, you can't get living water right here. and But she's thinking, you know, like, what is he meaning by this? Because there's two different meanings there. What, what are you going to do? What, how are you going to get this, right? And Jesus gets, is getting personal right off, right off the bat. He's getting very personal with her. He's saying, really, he's, what he's saying to her is, is, I can give you the Holy Spirit. 
I have the power to give you the Holy Spirit, which continue will one time only will continue to satisfy you and fill you to overflowing for the rest of your life. But no one likes a person to get personal at first meeting, do we? We don't like that. You don't you don't ask political questions or religious questions usually in your first meeting of somebody. We really don't. Typically we deflect those conversations by throwing out a red herring. And if you don't know that term, you know, there's actually no fish called there's not actually no such thing as a as a red herring. There's there's no thing in nature like that. But it comes from brining a fish, and they usually used a herring that would make it red, and it made it really smelly. And as we know, you know, a prisoner escapes, and he goes he goes running off. They put scent dogs on him, but they would use these herrings to to train the dogs. They would run them down the trail and run them off the side, run them off the side, run them off the side to to train that dog to not follow those smelly trails, but stay on the scent of that of that that whatever, that prisoner or whatever it is that escaped, right? So it came to be known as this as something used to divert us, divert someone from getting to the truth. And this woman's first inclination right here is to throw out this theological red herring, right? She knows she's talking to a Jewish guy. She's going to throw out a theological red, red herring since she's uncomfortable. She's very uncomfortable with Jesus going so deep so soon. It gets personal really quick, so she deflects right? Her first red herring is, it comes in the form of a question. Do you think that you're greater than our father Jacob, right? But Jesus doesn't go for the bait, right? He stays right on her scent. He answers her, her question and he addresses her need by continuing along with his illustration, right? He says in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. It's almost like he ignores the Jacob question, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a, a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. My boy's sharing the gospel. He is, he is on it, right? And he answers her a question without ever mentioning Jacob. He knows she has no satisfaction in life. This is just, you know, misery, right, so to speak. And the verb form in verse 13 suggests that you have to go back again and again, over and over and over again, to drink water from that well, you know, always working to satisfy your thirst. So Jacob builds a well that can only temporarily satisfy your bodily thirst, right? Your bodily needs. But the verb form in verse 14 switches. The water Jesus gives suggests drinking only one time. Only one time, which satisfies thirst and our need uh, from within forever. So that's why it says living water, right? Living water, like a faucet, which has been turned on in your life. And it fills us to overflowing constantly. It fills that longing in her heart, which she's tried to fill all her life with other things, right? Verse 15, she says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water all the time, right? That's what she says. So 
we see right now she's looking down at her circumstances. She's still kind of thinking about that well. Maybe she's asking another question because she feels that there's much more going on here to this conversation than, she, than just about water in this well. But she starts to ask about these physical circumstances. She doesn't get it really fully yet. She doesn't really fully understand. And she, but Jesus will eventually get her to take her eyes off of that, her, her situation, and put them on himself, right? And don't we all need that? I need that. That's why I'm preaching these sermons lately, right? I'm really, you guys are just sitting here, sitting, you know, kind of watching my life unfold. I need to hear this. So if it's a blessing to you, God bless you. But I'm, I'm preaching, man. I'm preaching to myself right now. You know, this woman has had a difficult life. It's, she's, it's, she's probably got a life full of backbreaking work. Just slogging it out day in and day out. And Jesus is going to help her understand that he is speaking of something much deeper, right? Um, he's speaking of a deep thirst in her soul, of satisfying you know, that thirst in her, which has brought her to a life of shame in a local community, which he and he alone can take away. Nothing else can. And in the next line, he names the source of her shame. In verse 16, he says, go, call your husband, and come back. <laughs> go, call your husband, and come back. Mm. That was a little bit of a stab right there, and, and she would feel it, right? This woman had come alone in the, in, 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 to a distant well at, you know, sort of an unusual time of day, in the middle of the day, because of her social position in this village. That's what people think. In other words, she wasn't just a Samaritan and a, just a woman that he shouldn't be talking to as a Jewish rabbi. She was prom- promiscuous at some level. She was promiscuous, living in shame in her community. So she goes to the well at the height of the day not to have to deal with all the stares and all the comments from others. The other women would go in the cool of the morning, but she was an outcast. She was an outcast. And so by asking her to go call her husband, Jesus reveals her real thirst, doesn't he? And that is a thirst for a a number of things, maybe. A thirst for protection for a vulnerable woman in a very hard, you know, patriarchal world. A thirst to be loved, a thirst to be cared for, a thirst to be important, or a thirst to be central in someone else's eyes, to be special to someone. And, you know, even you men in this room, you want that. She has a hole in her heart she's been trying to fill for years and years and years. And she has tried to satisfy that thirst or fill that hole with men. That's it. But she's been unable, she's found herself unsatisfied. She cannot slake her thirst that way. It doesn't work. Now let me stop there and say, sin is not always something we do with evil intent. Let me under, you got to understand this. When, we, when a pastor stands up here and he says the word sin, you always think it's like some evil intention that you have to go do wrong. No, it's not always that. Right? Sometimes our sinful choices are simply made out of feel, fear or self-preservation. 
cowardice sometimes. Those things, we make choices in those moments that are unhealthy and therefore they are sinful. Maybe this woman was just a total harlot. Maybe she was. But I don't think so. Maybe she was just a woman who couldn't bear children. Maybe, and I'm reading between the lines, believe me, I understand I'm doing that right now, but maybe she was a woman who had gone through husband after husband after husband, and she had never produced a child for anybody, so they just divorce her and get rid of her, and they go to someone else, and this last guy simply says, he's probably the most honest of the bunch, he's like, I won't marry you, but I'll, I'll take the goodies, and I'll protect you along the way. Maybe. And she would take it. And who would blame her? Right? See, sinful choices are no less damaging to us if they're made out of perceived need or fear. But either way, they reveal our need for Jesus. Right? She goes to that well every single day, every day for water. Right? And also... This story is revealing that she goes back to the well of men every single day over and over and over again to satisfy her own thirst for love and connection. Then we all need that. And we suffered greatly for the past stupid year for not being connected to each other, right? You know, it would be really simplistic to call her a, a word I won't say because there are children in the room, right? If they weren't here, I would say it. No one is just that, right? The, the S word start, S starts with an S and ends with a T, and it's, you know, all that stuff. But anyway, but we all react to God, uh, this God-given desire for acceptance, for love, for relationship, which we seek to satisfy in a variety of ways, in a myriad of ways in our lives, right? We do. You may satisfy it in a very different way than this woman did. You know, her avenue was men. And if she was one of those S things, then so are we. We all are. We're all prostituting ourselves out someplace. Just for acceptance, for for connection and things like that. The question is, what is it? What, What do you go to? What's your well? What do you go to to satisfy your thirst in life? Verse 17, she says, I have no husband. It's kind of, she, it was probably like a painful moment for her to say those words. I have no husband. You know, it's, it's, it was true. She didn't have a husband, but it was not fully true, and she knew it. Right? Because she does what we all do. She only answers enough to seem like she's being honest, because she's figuring, he doesn't know about me. He doesn't know my life. She says, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll tell him enough to it seems like I'm being honest with him. But she doesn't divulge the whole truth because she's reacting out of years of hurt and shame that other people have heaped upon her. She doesn't need another Jewish dude sitting behind the, by, by, by this well heaping more shame on her. She already feels all that. So she tells him only what she needs to, to tell him. But Jesus, as we know, is on her scent, right? He's lovingly cornered her in this theological tree, and she doesn't even realize it yet. He won't shame her, but he has to go there to reveal her true thirst. He has to bring this stuff up. 
We have to come to grips with where, what we are doing in our lives that are disconnecting us, that are, that are hurting us and damaging us in order, in, in order to understand Jesus. And she doesn't understand that what she really needs is his love and his acceptance. His a connection with him. Verse 18, she says, uh, he says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So he knows all about her without ever having met her. That says something, doesn't it? He sees right into the very core of her darkness, confronting on her on what she perceives as her totally failed life. She has not gotten what she thought. You know, all her little hopes as a little girl have not come to fruition. Don't some of you feel that way? Some of you are in your 20s. You don't feel that way yet. You might feel that way when you're in the 50s and 60s and 70s. It didn't turn out the way that I thought it was going to turn out. Now, although he doesn't condone her actions, he doesn't condemn her. And he doesn't condone her actions, by the way. Although he doesn't condone her actions, he does not condemn her. Notice he's not showing her why she can't be in his company. She's, he's showing her why she needs to be in his company. Right? Right? Jesus is not condoning her lifestyle. I've I got to point that out. And we know that not only from this conversation, but we also know from the fact that he reaffirms the Hebrew moral law, the scriptures, right, in other places in the New Testament. He says this. But that moral law was put into place to reveal our need for divine redemption, to reveal need in us, to drive us towards God. And many of us are all also living in ways like her, which are, Jesus will challenge. He will. He will challenge. You can't walk with him long enough without him challenging them, right? He'll not shame you, but he will call us to transformation through repentance of those, from those things. You can't have salvation without repentance. It's a, I, I know modern progressive Christianity thinks you can, but you cannot. It doesn't work. It's not the gospel. So he's speaking to her and he's saying, when everyone else shuns you, I accept you. (laughs) Right? I know you're just trying to satisfy this deep sort of thirst for love and connection and relationship, but you're going about it all wrong. You're going about it in ways that are destructive to you. And he loves her as only he can love her. But as we said before, when someone gets too close to our hearts, it hurts, right? And she throws out her second red herring. She brings up an age-old argument between Jew and Samaritan, starting with a compliment. Because we want to throw somebody off the, off the mark, we, we, we compliment them, right? We get them to think great thoughts about themselves, and maybe they forget about us, right? And hopefully that'll throw them off. Verse 19, she says, Sir, I can see, oh, oh I can see that you are a prophet, Right? Wouldn't you, like, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you think great about yourself? And she says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that, that, that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she refers to a, 
old theological argument as to where God should be worshipped. And if you're reading this and you don't know any of the background, you'd be like, what is, what is she talking about? Right? Like, who cares, right? But the Jews emphasize Mount Moriah. The Samaritans emphasize Mount Gerizim. Right? And so this would be the equivalent today of speaking with someone about, Je- about what Jesus means to them. And when the message starts to become too personal and, and too close to their heart, they say something like, well, how can God be loving if there's so much suffering in the world? How can God be loving if, if there are Hitlers out there? How can God be loving if all that stuff happened in the Old Testament? Red herrings. She expected him, as a Jewish man, to start arguing from his side, right? To be very religious about this. To say that Samaritans don't know what they're talking about. Which he kind of does in a minute. But he doesn't quite go that far as she thinks he would. And he gives her a surprising answer. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father. You will worship the Father. You, a Samaritan that I'm supposed to hate, are going to worship the Father. And that's, that's, that's telling right there. You will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. We're going to come together. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. There it is, right? And that's true. You, we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. That is true. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, a lot of us want to worship in spirit, but not in truth. Again, a lot of segments of Christianity right now are throwing the truth out the window and thinking that they can just worship in spirit. It does not work. That implodes. Or explodes. I'm not sure which one. So the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Can't chuck the truth out. Can't just worship in spirit. You can't just worship in truth and chuck the spirit out. And you're a dead old, like, whatever, you know, if you do it that way. What do they say? Uh, Love without truth lies. Truth without love kills, right? Jesus is saying to her, it's not where you worship, but who you worship. And ironically, the who is sitting right there by the well in front of her. So with Jesus, we see that a new era has come, a new era of worship. To worship in truth is to worship God through Christ and through the complete scriptures which speak of Christ. But the Samaritans had only adopted just a little segment of that. So he's he's challenging that, as he should. They only believed in a certain part of the scriptures, not the whole kit and caboodle. And you've got to take all of it. To worship in spirit is to worship in relationship with him, to be filled with the spirit of God. Now, everybody that has lived and died, who is living or who will live into the future, are worshipers. We are, by nature, beings of worship. All of us worship, whether or not you're an uh, an atheist, an agnostic, or whatever you are, you are a worshiper. Romans 1.25 says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Now, her worship 
I don't know, maybe you could say it it centered around men, hoping that they would satisfy her need. I don't know. Yet she's a Samaritan, and as such, she was told to look to Mount Gerizim, a place, a concrete place, an objective thing, right? To, to wrap her thoughts about, around about concerning this great God of the universe. But God is looking for us to go beyond that sort of objective place of worship, right? To the subjective relationship with Jesus, which gives true meaning to those objective things. Beyond the trappings of religion to the person of Jesus. Now, is this place, is this place the church? No. If we, and we all know this, if we extracted ourselves and went out and met in the park across the street, it would be the church. It still would be the church. But does our worship and this, you know, our choosing to be in this place make it a special place? Of course it does. But it's not magic. We are the temple of God. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We've got to remember these things. You know, objectively, you can know a person. So and so is five foot six you know, inches tall. They're they're they have brown hair. They have blue eyes. Whatever. Can you have brown hair and blue eyes? I guess you can. I don't know. Anyway, I heard if you have blue eyes, you are somehow connected to every blue eyed person on the earth in relation. I don't know if that's true, but um, <laughs> but we can objectively know things about a person, right? However, to know them sort of subjectively is to have this deeper emotional connection with them, to explore sort of, sort of who they are as a person, which is a bottomless sort of expansive well of soul. And that's what she's being confronted with. She's known the objective, sort of disconnected concept of God, pointing to Mount Gerizim, and there, that has still left her thirsty. It's just been a religion. One reason is because Samaritans only had half the truth. And we know that half a truth is only a lie. Half a truth is not a whole truth, which makes it a lie. Just like coming to church would leave you wanting and more until you go beyond that and you truly are filled by the free-flowing well of Jesus which gives meaning to the objective things that you experience. So, should you come here bodily, physically? Should you come to church and worship corporately? Yes, and I believe you should come here as often as you possibly can and you should not make excuses and oversleep and, and... Choose not to be here because it's important to be here. Physically, there's something about us gathering together and doing these things. But none of that has any meaning without the connection of yourself with Jesus and your connection with the body as, as, as the body of Christ, right? In her mind, God is for the religious. She's just a woman trying to get by. She's feeling empty and used. She's filled that with a thirst for men. But now she's faced with not only the objective Jesus, a bodily person sitting right before her. Because remember, he was fully God and fully man. Right? And he's sitting right in front of, in front of her. But she's hearing his heart beside that well as well. You know, she's hearing his emotion. She's hearing his, 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 his heart, whatever. And it's not the usual message of shame that she would get from a Jewish man. But it's one of love and one of acceptance and one of relationship and one of hope. It's very different. And maybe it sounded too good to be true to her, right? 
And to assure herself of what she's hearing, she says in, in, in verse 25, I know that Messiah, see the lights are starting to go on in her mind, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And she's thinking, this guy just told me everything about my life back here. I know that Christ the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Kind of like you, like read behind the, the you know, in her, in her thoughts, like you just did to me. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I am he. And that's it, right? I'm God in the flesh. I am that Christ. I am that Messiah. I am the promised one. It's not a religion. It's a person who wants to be in relationship with you. And I'm here to fill that thirst in your heart that you tried so desperately to fill your whole life with other things. Even you, a promiscuous Samaritan woman whom everyone else rejects, I accept. I'm here for you, shunned and living in shame. You know, we do the prison fellowship uh, ministry. Every Monday night, there's a group of us that meet online right now. Hopefully, we'll be able to go into the prison physically soon. But these guys asked us uh, last week, they said, if I get out of here, can I come to your church? And I said, of course you can. No, you don't understand. If I get out of here and I come to your church, will those people accept me? I said, yeah, I think they will. I said, you know, to be honest, you know, maybe some of them are going to hold their kids a little tight, you know, whatever. I said, but don't fault them for that. I said, but, but pretty much my church is a very welcoming place. By the way, Shibu wrote this little note. I just thought it was wonderful. The guy that led the Share Your Faith workshop last week. And he just wrote this long note to us. And he actually called me and said the same thing on the phone. And so I was kind of surprised to get the note. But he just talked about how warm and welcoming our church was. How everybody that was from outside of our church that came to the, the, the workshop um, just felt like we are such a warm church. That's part of being in Christ. That's part of being filled with the, with the Spirit of God, isn't it? Sorry, I'm like off script here. But um, Jesus, this story teaches us that Jesus satisfied her thirst and that he can ours as well. And that he waits at that well to draw out living water which meets all of our needs, right? So the, 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 the question for us is, do we allow him to flow so freely in our lives? Right? Or do we just keep running back to the well of our idols? Worshipping things which keep us going back and forth and back and forth to fill our water jars over and over and never really satisfy us. Maybe you're brand new, you're just finding out about Jesus, I don't know. Maybe you've been, quote-unquote, walking with Jesus for years, but you haven't really gotten it. You haven't really just, you've not really connected. Maybe God is leading you deeper. Because that is backbreaking work. It never really satisfies us, does it? This woman didn't seem to be seeking. As I said, she didn't, she didn't bring up the conversation. Jesus engaged her. He placed himself right next to the well of what she thought was going to satisfy her. He lovingly confronted her on her need. Do we allow ourselves to be confronted in such a way? Because Jesus will place himself right beside that well that you are drawing from. He will, and he will offer you a different drink. The question is, will you take it? 
Will you take it? Even after you've been walking for, with Jesus for 30 years and you're tired and you're worn out, will you go back and say, Jesus, fill me one more time? The story concludes, verse 28, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. <laughs> right? Did he really tell her everything I ever did? Did he say, well, you were born on July 4th, 19-whatever, uh, and, and you, you lived and you did this and you went to whatever elementary school? No, he didn't tell her everything she ever did, but that's the way it feels to her because she is finally feels known she finally feels connected she feels like somebody can see into her soul and it's okay and it continues could this be the messiah she says and they came out of the town and they made their way towards him isn't it interesting that this woman that they probably weren't talking to before now commands a crowd isn't that amazing she's filled and she overflows to everyone around her She's probably never heard the word evangelist, but that day she became one. She didn't have a seminary degree. She didn't speak every little detail of the gospel perfectly to them, but she did invite them to come and to meet Jesus. She introduced people to him out of overflow. And the result was, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him and they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days, just two days. And, he beca- and because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Not just a good teacher, not this, not that. He is the only, the clear Savior of the world. So she was filled with the person of Jesus. She overflowed Jesus to others. They were filled with Jesus, and they, in turn, overflowed to others. And if it were possible for us to trace back our spiritual lineage, all of us in this room, to, to go back to every single person who had shared the gospel and brought us to faith, Would we come back to this moment? Maybe. Isn't that amazing to think about? So we had that Share Your Faith workshop last week, and we're going to be doing some follow-up uh, a follow-up meeting to that, some other stuff, uh, some practice of it and things like that. But anyone is invited to come to those things. I'll put out an email about it once we figure our, ourselves out. Um, even if you didn't attend the first thing, Come on out to it. But, you know, remember that you can learn all the mechanics of how to share the gospel with somebody. You can learn all the mechanics, all the right things to say, the right verses to quote, and all that kind of stuff. But it is much better, it, it works much, much better for the joy and the peace and the hope of Jesus to overflow from within you. Just to pour out on people, right? As you trust in Him. As you walk with Him. Stepping out in faith and drawing others in. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us, and Dave's going to come up and lead us through communion. Father, we thank you. We thank you for stories like this. Even if we hear them over and over and over again, we know that they are, they are rich. They are rich with something that we need to hear and rehear and think about again and again and again. We ask that you would fill each person in this room and each person watching at home with your spirit 
in a way that just overflows in joy and hope and peace to other people around them. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.